This is Lawyer Up. I'm John Gonzalez. I'm here with my law partner, Jack Derora. We're business and trial lawyers with the B Hall Law Group in Columbus, Ohio. Today, we're talking with Jen Miller, Executive Director of the Ohio League of Women Voters. Welcome, Jen. Thank you. Jen, before we get started with sort of the nuts and bolts of what the League of Women Voters does, why don't you tell us how the League got started? Well, that's a fun story. We are officially 100 years old this year. Uh, the Ohio Women's Suffrage Association was formed in the 1890s. It was, uh, its purpose was to bring together various local suffrage organizations and to work on statewide legislation um, granting women the right to vote. In 1920, when we were very hopeful that the 19th Amendment was going to be ratified uh, by enough states, we had a convention in downtown Columbus, um, and at that convention, um, the members of the Ohio Women's Suffrage Association voted to transform into the League of Women Voters. And so that was nurses and teachers, business women, um, actually some lawyers, uh, um, the Federation of Colored Women's Club, the Council of Jewish Women, the DAR, just a very diverse group of women who realized that soon we would have a new voting populace that would need to be empowered and educated on the, the how and the what and the where of voting. Are you saying that all those separate groups sort of amalgamated into the League of Women Voters? Yes, absolutely. So it was a very powerful group of women um, who were already breaking their own barriers, but recognized that um, there was a lot of power missing for women at the time in 1920 without that access to the ballot box. And so, you know, as suffragists, you know, they were thinking about the fact that there was forced marriage, um, but no divorce was allowed, um, thinking about, you know, a lot of other issues, funding for education, clean water. Um, and so when the league formed, it was kind of a two-part item one piece was really those logistics around voting but then the second was really understanding government in general so that uh, women knew how to advocate women understood for example how legislative maps were drawn um, understood how court races uh, ran one interesting little tidbit is the league of women voters is known nationally for our voter guide which is nonpartisan and and is a very 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 helpful tool for voters that actually started in ohio in the 1920s and is still a trademark of our organization across the country can we can i pause you there and tell our listeners about the voter guide when i ran for a common pleas judge almost six years ago now i seem to recall getting a uh, questionnaire and putting in some information about me uh, in the voter guide, lots of voter guides, but the uh, Women's League of Voters guide is really nice. Tell us a little bit more about it. Right. So um, we, we work really hard on being fair. And so first off, you can go to vote411.org and you can put in your address and it'll pull up the races in your area. Um, we, those questions are designed by league members thinking about what are the most important questions of, for that particular candidate or community. Um, but here's the big thing. A candidate gets that login information and they, they directly enter their answers. So they can't send us their answers for us to enter in for them. They have to do it themselves. 
Why? Because we want to just be the conduit between voters and candidates. We don't want to have any editorial ability. Something else that's interesting is that um, for statewide races, which is what we focus on, state level races, any candidate can answer. So even write-in candidates or minor party candidates can answer. So in 2018, for the governor's race, we actually had eight candidates that voters could learn about for governor because online we can have more space and we can let anyone um, who is legitimately a candidate write in or minor party or major party respond. What's the participation um, I say rate of that? Do, do most candidates uh, go ahead and enter information or do a lot of them decide that they're not going to do that for some reason? Yeah, um, most candidates do. We do need their email address. So sometimes we are challenged in that we don't have a good email address for that person. We need to send it to them for them to have the login instructions and answer. Um, and so if you or know someone who's a candidate, you should make sure that they know about the voter guide and that they are calling our office and making sure we have the right email address for them. We also have another website that I think is particularly interesting for your group that is a partnership with the Akron, with Akron University, the Ohio Supreme Court, and the League, and it's called Judicial Votes Count. Right. So that is also a voter guide. It's the same questions and answers for judicial candidates, but it goes into greater detail about what is a court and what's a judge's job. And... And, and that really matters because we know that voters are more likely to skip to the judicial races and not answer those questions. And when we've asked Ohioans, they say it's because they don't feel like they understand uh, courts or that they don't know the candidates. And, you know, I think that's so interesting because judges, as all of you know, really impact our daily lives or can. And so we don't want voters skipping those questions. Yeah, it's a great irony. They do so much, but from the viewpoint of the average citizen, judges are a million miles away. It's true. Well, let's talk about gerrymandering. Um, I know that's a, a big issue. And um, Jen, I can tell you that uh, my wife, Ann, was uh, a house representative uh, from the 19th district. And her district stretched from Westerville around 270 in Franklin County, all the way out to Canal Winchester. And it was crazy when we had to do um, parades on the 4th of July or really any holiday. But uh, her and I always thought that what strange districts are drawn, uh, maybe you can tell our listeners a little bit about what uh, you know, your organization is doing about the gerrymandering and the districts that our representatives see. Well, please give Anne my regards. I do remember her well. Um, very hardworking lawmaker. So yeah, let's talk about gerrymandering. Um, we have had a gerrymandering problem in Ohio for a very long time. So let's back up. What does gerrymandering mean? It means creating the maps in a way that will, as much as possible, ensure that a seat will go one direction or the other. Um, you know, there's two kinds, there, well, there's multiple kinds, but one is a racial gerrymandering, um, where you're trying to limit potentially uh, minority candidates from winning seats. Um, that is, 
less of an issue in Ohio, um, and we do have some federal laws over that. Political gerrymandering is when one party really has power in the state house and uses that power to preserve uh, their power over time. Um, and so in Ohio, the League of Women Voters has been fighting gerrymandering for um, since the 70s, actually. We first started fighting gerrymandering when Democrats were in power. Democrats had the pen and they were trying to solidify their power through these maps. Um, and then more recently, we see these massive super majorities um, in uh, the congressional map and in the state house. And those really are in part because of this gerrymandering. So for example, in the congressional map, um, it doesn't matter how many Democrat, how many folks vote um, Republican or Democrat across the state. We are for this decade, we've been cemented in a 12-4 map, meaning 12 Republicans, for Democrats. Um, and even when we have a big wave year, it's really insulated, you know, a big wave year for Democrats, it, the map is insulated from changing because they've really manipulated those borders. Yeah, to, and let's, let's be clear yeah. about what that really means. If we have yeah. 12 Republicans and four Democrats, it doesn't mean that we have three times more Republicans in the state. It might be a close to 50-50 split, but by however you massage those districts, you can get the outcome you want. That's the the, the travesty yeah. of it or the beauty of it if you're the guy with the pen, right? Yeah, I think so. So, And, and that doesn't mean that every election we would have an 8-8 eight, eight map, Republican Democrats, even though we are about 50-50 in this state, but it should be more responsive. You should have some seats because we are such a swing state that are flipping back and forth and are a little bit more dynamic. But let's talk about this from the voter perspective because I think that matters a lot. I think we think about this from a party perspective, but as a voter, it doesn't actually matter if you're a Republican or Democrat, you are harmed by gerrymandering, right? If I am an elected official and I know that I'm gonna win my seat next time because the map is designed to guarantee it, I don't have to listen to you, right? So the point is that voters, you know, voices matter more when it's possible for voters to change the way a district swings. Um, we have more swing, more play in the Senate and the, and the House of, you know, the Ohio General Assembly than we do Congress. Congress is far more cemented. Um, but still we see overall that representationally it's not as fair as it should be and that and our argument is that hurts everyone grassroots voices don't need to be heard if lawmakers are sure that they're going to keep their seat no matter what so gerrymandering though is both at the state level and the federal level and so when you say congressional map you're talking about our federal representatives right yep and then uh so is it worse at the federal level? Absolutely. All right. So, but our state legislature uh, would be the place to change both at the state level and the federal level. Is that correct? Well, so we do have some reforms that have come in place. Um, and, and those were reforms that the League of Women Voters got on the ballot in 2015 for state map making, state house map 
making um, that passed by almost 72% of the vote across Ohio and in all 88 counties. Congressional map making reforms are in 2018. And I'll, I'll go through them, but I just want to clarify because people will remember fair districts. They'll remember, um, you know, these, these um, anti-gerrymandering um, uh, ballot initiatives. Um, the 2018 to change congressional map making processes passed by almost 75% of the vote. And again, overwhelmingly in all 88 counties. So the first thing I want to point out is that instinctively, the people of Ohio realize that the way our maps have been drawn is unfair for everyone, um, you know, for all voters, again, regardless of their striving. When you say 75% of the vote, these were referendums. These were citizens voting. This wasn't done by the, by the state house. That's important to me. Yeah, so th those were 75% of general population Ohio voters understanding that map making processes need to be more fair, more transparent, um, and not where politicians are gaming the system, but in fact, that voters have the ability to elect those politicians that represent them because the maps are responsive. So let's back up though. You are right, um, John, that the Ohio legislature plays a role in creating those maps. Um, but there also is a redistricting commission. It's a little bit kind of complicated and confusing how each of those pieces works. The through line of both the 2015 and 2018 reforms though, is that it requires far more transparency um, it really encourages bipartisan map making, which has not been the case in the past. Um, in the past, one party could just make the map and the other party just had to live with it. It encourages more bipartisanship and it sets forth some criteria that must be part of maps. And if they're not, um, organizations like mine could decide to go to court. And we have not, in, 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 the, in the last several years, we've seen a lot of work on gerrymandering at the ballot box, but also within the courts. And it would uh, set forth criteria that could be done in our state Supreme Court, if needed. Are these directed more at the congressional seats or at the state seats? So it's both. So 2015 outlines fairness um, and criteria for the state General Assembly so the, the Ohio Senate and the Ohio House and the 2018 reforms is about the congressional maps. I also just want to mention that these reforms were um, also endorsed by both Republicans and Democrats. So, which I think is, is a big positive that we all recognize we had a problem with the map making. Well, you know what, there's a certain irony in that. Republicans and Democrats both favored it, but they, they didn't have the fortitude to get it done in, by themselves on their own in the state house. Is that a fair reading? Well, actually, no, they, they are the ones who technically put it on the ballot. So in both cases, the league was out with our clipboards, and I'm sure a lot of you interacted with our members, um, and we were collecting those petitions for those reforms. The reforms that we were collecting petitions for were actually stronger than what came to the people at the ballot box because we ended up negotiating with the General Assembly um, to create proposals that would be what voters would decide upon. 
So there's kind of a pro and a con to this. The, the pro is that we came, these are grand works of compromise and we were able to get them passed. Um, the con is that our own reforms would have been an independent redistricting commission. Um, it would have taken a lot of the politics out of it completely. Um, and, and, but we also knew that if one or both parties were against it, it might not pass at the ballot box. Speaking of court decisions, there were two or three at the U.S. Supreme Court regarding gerrymandering. Personally, I was disappointed. What's your point of view at the League of Women Voters? And maybe you ought to inform the audience what I'm talking about. Sure. Well, first off, so um, we also had a court case in the queue to be heard by the Supreme Court as well. But we had some cases about gerrymandering that had made it through, you know, the federal courts and made it up to the Supreme Court. One was an example of Republicans doing the uh, partisan gerrymandering. Was One was an example of Democrats doing the partisan gerrymandering. And ultimately, the Supreme Court decided that uh, gerrymandering was not an issue that courts should rule on. Um, that, and, and so this is disappointing for us because our whole point is that it's really human. I mean, let's let's just be honest. If your team has an advantage, which is they are the majority in power, you're going to want to use that advantage to protect your power in the future. It's just human nature. It does, you know. And so, map making has is particularly political and partisan, and having judges help to look through those issues is is really important. So we were disappointed that the Supreme Court closed the door on those cases. We had one in federal court um, against Ohio's congressional districts. Um, and that, by the way, was three judges. Um, so it was a bipartisan panel of federal judges. And so uh, the, that was the state was appealing that decision. Um, and that would have also gone before the Supreme Court. Um, but the door was shut on it. So what we're talking about now, though, is in our state constitution, it wouldn't be very easy to bring cases to um, the, the state Supreme Court, the Ohio Supreme Court. But both 2015 and 2018 reforms um, make that more possible now because these reforms and these expectations and criteria for fairness are in our Ohio constitution now. Just for uh, people's education, how long will these uh, congressional districts or the state districts uh, be in place? Is it still for 10 years? Is it? So um, should be, right? We should have new maps in place for 10 years. They're always based on the decennial census. So if someone's worried about our maps, the first thing they should do is make sure they filled out their census and that everyone they know has done so. Um, that's the data that we will use to determine um, uh, how many, uh, you know, how many people should be in each state house district, right? It'll also help us determine how many congressional seats we have. But here's the thing, John, that makes it complicated. Um, if they cannot get um, bipartisan support, instead of it being a 10-year map, it's a four-year map. So we would, and I really don't want that. I would rather us have a map that, that 
is fair for everyone, Republicans, Democrats, that there's consensus on this map. And maybe it's not perfect, but it's a lot better. And we have that in place for 10 years versus four years means that we all have to go through this process again. And it's very energy intensive. And I don't think we can go a day without reading about problems with the upcoming election in November. What's Ohio doing to get ready? Yeah, so um, elections are always complicated. Um, we, you know, there's just so many pieces and parts that most of us never see. They are especially complicated when we expect it to be a high turnout year. And clearly, this is a major election in that regard. So we expect high turnout. And then we layer on top of that, that we will still have concerns with COVID-19. So the biggest worry that I have is that we won't have enough poll workers and we won't have a, a lot of people voting earlier absentee. And that combination will mean long lines on election day. And many of you, I'm sure, remember the long lines in 2004 that were hours long. And there was inclement weather across the state, not unusual in November. And so people were crowding into these polling locations. And um, there weren't six inches, let alone six feet between people. So we are worried long lines are bad for democracy because maybe you just don't have hours to stand in line, right? You need to go pick up your kid. You need to go to the doctor. You need to take care of your elderly aunt, you know? So but long lines are bad no matter what. And then long lines in a pandemic are, are absolutely dangerous. So a couple good things though, all three forms of voting should still exist. So we should have in-person voting on election day, 28 days of early voting and absent, no excuse absentee voting where you can vote by mail. All three of those will still be in existence. We should not expect to see a all vote by mail election as we saw in the primary. The big difference is that we now know that COVID-19 is here. We didn't have our first case of COVID-19 until confirmed case until about a week before the election. That's not enough time to completely change all of our operations. And let's remember that there was already a global run on sanitation supplies and gloves and, and, and hand sanitizer. And these boards of elections really couldn't even get the, the supplies they needed to run uh, election day safely um, for the primary. But let me just give you one stat, about 85% of Ohioans wait to vote in person on election day. So I, vote. I always vote in person and I, I like doing that, except this year I may actually do early voting. But John, the thing, yeah, John, like early voting is also in person voting, right? It just yeah. allows you to spread it out. I like in-person voting because I have a daughter who's 22. And so for the last several years, we go vote together. We live in different districts, but it becomes a fun thing. We go out to eat afterwards. I give her, of course, the voter guide in advance that she has to read while we're in the car in case she hasn't done her research. Um, I don't tell her how to vote. I just want to make sure that she has done her own research. Um, so early voting is a very positive option, and we're really hoping a lot of people will use it. I, I seem to recall last time I voted, I think it was the last time they changed the voting machines that uh, one, they had fewer at my polling place by far. It was, there may have been 30 there the last time and now there were five. 
and, and the process had changed that made it all more cumbersome. Do you know why that was? Or, and was that across the state? Is that a Franklin County thing? Well, so um, new machines is really important. And we helped champion the, you know, we certainly supported, let me say, the um, appropriation from the Ohio General Assembly of about $114 million to go to boards of elections for new machines. Because just like our computers need to be upgraded, so do voting machines. Um, I'm not sure about why those uh, reductions were the case, unless potentially there weren't as many precincts at that polling location anymore. But I will just say this, um, again, since we have a legal audience, after the 2004 election, the league did sue the state over election administration. And out of that settlement are now election administration plans. And so boards, every boards of election, every board of elections has to kind of outline what they expect their attendance to be and how many machines they're going to allocate and why, what their backup plans are. If, if God forbid machines go down or the uh, electricity goes out or, you know, those kinds of things. Um, and that certainly is a big positive in our opinion. And those election administration plans are something that anyone, you know, could call their board of elections and ask information on. And you might, you know, even be able to go back, John, and, and look and see why they made those decisions at that location. Do those plans have information on, uh, like, even foreign interference uh, at the local level? Can you talk about that? Yeah, absolutely. So those plans have all kinds of security features in there. One thing I want to make sure our voters understand uh, you know, and that our listeners understand is that actually Ohio has really great security protocols in place. It's one of the things that we should be so proud of. I, I do spend a lot of time talking about all the things we could make better. This is a place where we're doing really well. Um, you know, we hear from some that are worried that voting by mail is not secure. We hear from others that are worried about voting in a machine is not secure. The great news is that in Ohio, both work pretty well. So in terms of our machines, um, they have to do all kinds of, so first off, anything that's electronic or any system, they have, the boards of elections have a security checklist. Um, they get support from the Secretary of State and the federal government to make sure that their systems are secure. Um, no voting machines are hooked up to the internet. Um, so it would be hard to tamper with our machines. Great. In terms of voting by mail, we'll just talk about that real quick. You know, a person has to prove who they are twice rather than once when you vote absentee. So when you vote in person, you say who you are right when you're signing in, right? right. Um, uh, when you are voting absentee, you have to prove who you are when you request your ballot. So on your application. And if they don't think you are who you are, if they're not convinced, they can deny you, Right. And then you have to prove who you are when you cast your ballot. And if they, if you haven't um, put all of your information in there accurately, you know, you didn't put your social security number right or whatever, that ballot will get, will get thrown out. And so I think sometimes people think that, you know, maybe they, they think that someone could grab someone's ballot out of, out of the um, mailbox and just fill it out for them. But if their signature isn't right, they don't have the exact birth date right. They don't have either the driver's license or social security number. Those ballots are going to get thrown out. I'm not a 
Jen, I'm not a conspiracy theorist when it comes to voter fraud. And I haven't read of any significant fraud, but there was an incident that I read about from reputable sources in Camden, New Jersey, where three or 4,000 votes, I don't know what's the term, were disqualified or not counting because there was fraud. Somebody was personally handling these ballots in some manner that is prohibited. That's the only case I've read of. Is that, please tell me the outlier, or are there really some other problems out there that just don't hit the news as much? So I think this is a great question. So first off, I think the first thing we should take from that New Jersey story is that the system worked, that the bad actors were caught, and the votes didn't count. And that's why we have so much in our election systems that are about security. Um, The second is every secretary of state in recent years, Republican or Democrat, have said that voter fraud is exceedingly rare, almost non-existent. Um, There are, occasionally there is someone who is referred for uh, investigation because maybe they were committing voter fraud. Rarely are those, do those actually result in a conviction Um, Most of the time we find that we thought it was voter fraud, but then it turns out that this person actually now is a citizen, right? So we ran it through our data and we thought they were not a citizen, but now they've been naturalized and they voted after they were naturalized. So we just have a problem with their data sets, things like that. I suppose the skeptic might say, wait a minute, Jen, what you're trying to say is we should be proud of ourselves for capturing the three or four bad guys who were playing with three or 4,000 votes in Camden and look at that as a, as a victory. The skeptic might say, yeah, but wait a minute, how do we know that this isn't going on and just not being detected? Well, it does get detected. So what I would actually just say is this, is that actually every secretary of state, um, you know, is watching for voter fraud. Boards of elections are watching for voter fraud. And when inconsistencies are detected, they are researched. Um, Never would we in Ohio, I think, see three to 4,000. You know, it's usually the ones that get researched and investigated are usually 100 or less. And out of those, most of those get thrown out. And so then you might actually end up with one or two votes that were someone attempted to vote illegally, which is not going to sway, you know, most races. Um, So I do hear what people are saying, but let me just say this. We spend so much time on security that actually we make voting kind of difficult. Um, So uh, voter fraud, you know, Secretary uh, uh, Husted, you know, who's now uh, obviously Lieutenant Governor, Republican, Current Secretary of State, uh, Frank LaRose, military vet, hero, Republican, as well as Jennifer Bruner, uh, before them, a Democrat, all say that we have checks in place. All of them say that uh, voter fraud is exceedingly rare. And I think they're the chief elections officers in the state, and they're bipartisan in their um, analysis of this. We think about voting, uh, again, for our listeners, uh, Ohio still does not have a system where you can register and vote on the same day. 
you have to register before voting starts, correct? Yep. What's, so, what's your organization's, you know, take on that or position on that? So, yeah, our voter registration deadline is October 5th this year. So make sure you check your registration that it's up to date or get yourself registered. Um, it's October 5th. Um, we would like same day registration. We would like automatic voter registration. In general, our voter rolls are um, a little bit out of date, but not in the way that you think, not in that there's a whole bunch of dead people on the rolls, more that there's all of these living, breathing Ohioans who have moved and who have not updated their address, which then creates high provisional ballot counts um, on election day, where a voter is not then voting on a machine, right? They're getting brought to the side um, and they have an entirely different process. Um, and that's often because their address is out of date. Um, and that takes, it actually creates longer lines. It creates more work for the poll workers and it's, it's harder, frustrating for voters. Whereas if that voter could say, oh, I forgot, I have a brand new address and here's the proof of my address. And then they could just vote right then mm -hmm. and there, we would see um, a lot of efficiencies um, and positives from that. So they have to register by October 5th to vote in the November election. How easy is it to register? What, what does somebody do from a practical standpoint? So fortunately, um, everyone can go online to voteohio.gov. We should make sure that's the website. I should have looked. I think it's voteohio.gov. Um, but everyone can go to the Secretary of State's website and look up their registration. Um, and see if it's accurate, um, see if they're registered. Some people have been removed from the rolls for not um, voting in a six year period. Um, and so you can just go online and, and, and register. It's, it's actually quite easy. Um, usually we have volunteers all over the state at festivals and YMCA's and, and uh, citizenship ceremonies um, registering voters. This year we don't because of COVID. And so we really are encouraging everyone to check in with the people they love um, to make sure that they are registered. So it can be pretty easy. And then yeah. early voting then starts October 6th, the next day, correct? Yep. And that's the same day that um, absentee ballots would be mailed out. And so right now you could decide to request your absentee ballot and now, and then you would be put in the queue and you would be the first to, set of ballots to be processed um, and sent out on October 6th. Jen, I understand that Washington State and a few others have a 100% mail-in vote system. That's pretty intriguing. Can you talk about that and compare it So first off, to an absentee ballot, absentee ballot voting, and talk about any differences in security between the two. Sure. So first, no state actually is 100%. They're mostly, okay. um, but there are still options to show up in person and vote. And let's keep in mind that, um, especially persons with disabilities, may actually um, prefer to vote on machines um, so that they can vote independently. Right. Like, so if you're if you're sight impaired, you know, the machine can help you versus trusting someone filling out your ballot correctly. Um, so persons with disabilities, a lot of historically disenfranchised folks. Um, but most of these places have vote centers that you should you can show up on Election Day 
and go vote in person if you prefer. So um, it's never 100%, but it can be very, very, very high majorities. The first thing that's different is that every person gets a ballot. Um, these states have better voter registration programs like automatic voter registration. Anytime someone goes and interacts, for example, with the BMV, if, it's, if, they, if the BMV sees that the address is different, they say, hey, your address is different. I'm gonna automatically update your voter form unless you don't want me to, mm -hmm. right? Um, though, you know, far more accurate roles, you get a ballot, um, you have time to fill that ballot out um, and mail that back in um, anywhere up to eight weeks time. Um, unlike our system where you have to apply and you have to then wait to get the ballot. So, and one of the things that's really a problem with our absentee system is just it's super inefficient. So you have to apply um, through snail mail on a piece of paper. You can apply online for your absentee ballot. Um, we heard from uh, Kentucky election officials recently for the um, Ready for November task force that Secretary LaRose runs that actually allowing voters to request their ballots online was a game changer, both for voters for being more efficient, but also far more efficient for boards of elections. So um, I don't see us going to all vote by mail or mostly vote by mail, um, but we could make our absentee system more efficient. Um, which includes that application step. Getting back to the second part of my question, any change in voters, any difference in voting security between absentee voting and mail-in voting? No, I mean, look, I'm not an expert on those, on, on those states that do mostly uh, voting by mail. Um, but again, they, it, uh, fraud is exceedingly rare. It, it um, seems to get caught and prosecuted when when necessary. Um, and I know a lot of voters just really like it. Um, we in Ohio, we have a lot of voters who want to show up in person. And if, if you're that kind of person, then I would encourage you to early vote instead of waiting till election day this year. So what's not to like about automatic voter registration as you described you're registering every time you have a contact let's say with the bureau of motor vehicles or something else what is the resistance to that idea i don't know if there's actually super strong resistance um it would take a legislative change i just think sometimes it's hard to kind of get through all the noise at the ohio state house and get legislation done um we have automatic voter registration bills um, at the state house that are bipartisan in support, um, Republicans and Democrats and the Secretary of State and the League, all supporting those and the election officials. So I, I think eventually we'll get there. There are about 17 states that have some form of automatic voter registration and they really are red, blue and purple, just like us. We think about what um, we can do as citizens. Uh, you said that there aren't a lot of poll workers this time around. How does somebody become a poll worker? What are the qualifications for that? So I'm so glad you asked this question. It is the gold star question. So poll workers are really the backbone of our participatory democracy on election day. They do all the things that need to be done so voters can vote, you know? So they are on security. 
You know, if you have someone who needs to curbside vote, you have a Republican and Democrat go out to that car together. Those are poll workers. Someone who's checking you in and having you sign, that's a poll worker. Someone who gives you the really fun sticker that we all like to wear around because it's cool to vote, that's a poll worker. And so it's actually pretty darn easy. You can sign up through the Secretary of State's website or through your county board of elections. Um, you get trained. That training this year will include safety protocols regarding COVID-19, but it's also, you know, eligibility, you know, what IDs work, all the, you know, how the machines work, all the things, right? So you get trained and you get paid. It's not super great pay, but you get about a hundred and some bucks. I'm not going to guess because <laughs> um, uh, some counties have it differently, but but you get paid if you need, um, you're a high school student and you're 18 years old um, you or 17 years old, you can volunteer and you get paid and usually get school volunteer credit for that too. So it's super easy. It's very positive. Um, and anyone is eligible as long as you are a registered voter um, with the exception of individuals who have a former felony record. So if you have served your time for your felony, you can vote, but right now you are not able to serve as a poll worker. But I have heard from boards of elections that even if someone, maybe they're uh, a non-citizen who's here legally on a visa, maybe there's someone with a former record, maybe they're a 16 year old, even those folks, they're working to find ways to put them to work. They just wouldn't be the ones dealing with the active piece of voting. It could be that they're helping with line spacing. It could be that they're wiping down machines. Um, But the need for people is massive. We go through about 35,000 poll workers on election day. And the large majority of of those uh, individuals are older Ohioans who um, may be very worried about working the polls during COVID-19. I want you to know my wife brought up the idea of us working as poll workers this year. So I thought, wow, why not? Yeah, good for her. Let's go back. This idea of people with felony convictions, what's the story? They, They are, they're not permanently barred from voting, are they? No, no, I'm, I'm actually clarifying that. So one of the biggest Definitely. myths we have is that in Ohio, that if you um, have a, a felony conviction, but you've served your time, um, even if you're still on probation, you can vote. The only time that you can't is when you are actively serving time in prison for your felony, you cannot vote. But as soon as you leave prison, you should be registering to vote because you're allowed to vote again. The only thing they can't do is work as a poll worker. Isn't there an action in Florida concerning the registration of former felons? And it was a big number. Were you aware of that? Yeah, it's it's a very large number. Um, And I'm proud of Ohio that we recognize that these folks have served their time and we're bringing them back into the fold to be voters because the world... You know, I mean, policies affect them just as much as they affect you and I, and they pay taxes just like you and I. Oh, so you're saying the rules on voting for felons is determined by state law. That's not federal law. And so Florida had a different way of approaching it than Ohio law. Yeah. So in, yeah. So there's two things that have happened in Florida recently. One was to remove a state law prohibition on anyone who had ever um, serve time for a felony. Um, 
the other piece actually is about not allowing people to vote if they have debts to the state. Um, and I'll be honest that I haven't followed that one up as closely, but that one was really considered, was argued to be a poll tax. Um, I would argue it's a poll tax. Um, there's been, you know, court cases about that and, and I don't feel totally uh, educated on the issue because my job is really just to know Ohio. <laughs> you know, now, now that you mention it, there was some matter with that Florida issue of whether the felons had to make restitution on various court costs before they could vote. That might have been part of the issue. Good thought on your part. I had forgotten about that. You know, I just want to remind all of us that, that voting is sacred. And I really ask everyone to be part of the solution this year. And for me, it's not as important as to how someone votes, but that someone does vote and get out there. So if you can make sure to check on your senior citizens in your life or those who are immunocompromised or maybe new voters or students, this is, you know, voting is always complicated. It's a little more confusing and scary this year. Please do that. Um, please volunteer to be a poll worker. We also work with the Lawyers Committee on Civil Rights um, to run the nonpartisan election protection hotline, which is 866-R-VOTE. And we do have monitors in the field and we can always use legal expertise there. So if you, Jack, decide that you can't do the 14 hour day um, as a poll worker, I can't pay you, but you could be a poll monitor for election protection. Again, you would be serving any voter, doesn't matter how they vote, um, just helping them in the field. Um, and those can be as short as four hour shifts. Well, I, I suspect my wife and I will be lending a hand this year. Great. Jen, so, uh, let me uh, thank you uh, on behalf of both Jack and me. Uh, your uh, passion for voting rights, for education, for fairness in electing our representatives uh, is contagious. Uh, I'm getting excited about it. I, I may sign up for the for the uh, poll worker position too. So uh, thanks so much for coming on, educating us and our, and our listeners. We really do appreciate it. Thank you so much. It's been really fun. Jen, thank you also from me as well. I've enjoyed the conversation immensely. Lawyer Up will be back in a few weeks with Dr. Patricia Gabby of Moms-to-Be. We'll be talking about infant mortality and how racism is a public health crisis. I invite you to subscribe to Lawyer Up by going to our website, lawyerupcolumbus.com. You can download our podcast by using the podcast app on your phone. Until next time, remember to lawyer up. So long.